KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes, presenting Scene on the Screen with Jacqueline Coley, a new podcast about the people at NBC Universal and the movies that define them. Available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. From KCRW Santa Monica and KCRW.com, it's The Treatment. It's The Treatment, and it's always a pleasure to talk to our old friend, writer-director Sophia Coppola, whose new film is not by Edith Wharton, is instead <laughs> adapted from the book by Priscilla Presley. It is Priscilla. Sophia, first of all, thank you so much for doing this. Thanks, Alvis. I'm so glad to talk to you, always. Always a thrill to talk to you. And I can't think of this movie without thinking about Crimson and Clover and... <laughs> And that moment that you use it and why you use it. I mean, there's, but also, I mean, just thinking, I can't think of another movie that has Alice Coltrane covering Dvorak and Tommy James and the Chandelas in it. So talk to me about those two specific music choices. Yeah, I, um, well, I'm so glad that um, my husband, Tomah, and his bandmates at Phoenix helped me early on with trying to put together the music, you know, put together playlists and get, figure out the mood for the movie. And, um, yeah, and I would have thought of Alice Coltrane for the setting, but when, um, they played that for me, I was like, that is, I could just see her feet sticking in the shag carpet and the whole world. Um, so, so that was kind of the beginning point of, of starting to put the world together. And then, um, then as we were editing Randall poster, joined us and and we put together but I, I think I don't know why Tamal was playing that song with Crimson and Clover is just like a great song and um and after her first kiss it had to be like a goosebumps moment of I don't know I love her walking down the hall and it just all sinking in so that that song came to mind to really make that epic moment hopefully It's also in those songs, there's a moment of, of the symbol just sort of rising and having a crescendo and then fading in both of those songs that it's almost like this sort of state of being changing that feels like it in some ways it sort of encapsulates what she's going through in those moments. I'm so glad because I mean that's what you lean on with music is to underline the you know emotion that the character's feeling and and it always yeah it really always underlines that I try to I try to make things work without music because it because it I don't want to lean on it too much but then when it underscores it it's um that's always the best moment when a song works with with the scene and just gives that gives that emotion to it that you're looking for. Well, I just find it so interesting because so much of these moments, these moments, I know we talked about this before, is about that kind of sort of backbeat, syncopation, and and the way people's eyes sort of light up in those moments. And and 
there's a real graphic vitality in that in those intersections between expression and and these big beats that we're talking about. Yeah, I feel like um I mean her story had so so many epic moments that you know how do you get that feeling of what it could be like to be a young person in that world and and the excitement and the emotional ups and downs so I think just the the visuals and the colors that are you know so different than now that with um with that music just hopefully transports you into that world and the and and the feeling I'm always I'm always happy when you have a goosebumps moment well that's that's so prevalent for you I'm looking for that well you you do it so often and and so well but I just find myself thinking you talking about colors I always find myself thinking about the way you use the color green and sometimes it goes from these unnatural greens uh, in the interiors to her being outside playing with the dog in the lawn and how sort of green can sort of denote something artificial or something real and and, and earthy and and primal and and comforting oh that's cool I um yeah, I didn't think of that specifically but I definitely like first thinking about Graceland I think about those turquoise curtains and um and the decor there and and I also after kind of drab Germany in winter reality going to Graceland I you know wanted to show it kind of like Oz like this whole new world was opening up to her and the color and the style of what his world must have been like and and also like the the artificiality versus the real um I guess which nature always part of well, you, and you, I think about that so much, and, and I thought about that, too. For me, that's what connects this movie in some ways to, I think, Marie Antoinette, is that going from the those colors being sort of created with dyes artificially in interiors to then seeing them outside in nature. And and I always sort of love that sort of, that, that kind of conflict that we, we feel between the natural world in your films and being trapped inside. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I didn't think about that connection, but totally there is there is the kind of all the artifice and decoration and then she's looking for something more more real. And with the natural world of the petite train on, that sort of symbolizes that whole era. And 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 this too, when she goes from kind of the height of sixties glamour and hairspray to seventies where she is more natural and it's a whole different palette and in nature and stuff. And she also seems bigger in the later parts where, you know, the clothes aren't wearing her in the way that they are in the first oh, yeah. half of the movie. Yeah, definitely. That's a really good point. It, it's true that she's not she's not so much in a costume that they feel more um, in proportion with her. Because it's funny, you can't look at the movie and not, A, look at both of their hair colors, both Elvis and Priscilla, and B, also, as you make us aware of the weight of the Aquanet on those heads. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, there was a lot of Aquanet. Yeah, I love the pageantry and the dedication to glamour and style, but then, you know, it must be, imagine it must be tiring day after day. I think it seems fun and exhausting. Well, it's the treatment. We're talking to our old friend, Sophia Coppola, writer-director, about her new movie, which is doing very well. Thank goodness the film is Priscilla. You can also hear the show at kcrw.com slash the treatment. And I wanted to get to that. I'm glad you brought up the, the idea of Shaq, because for me, there's nothing more artificial that keeps you from being in contact with the earth <laughs> than Shag. And it becomes this kind of weird cloud that keeps her from being in touch with the, both of them, in touch with the real world. 
yeah, it's funny. I didn't think about it until just talking about now that like you would think of that shot being feet and grass, but it, I never thought of a shag carpet is this like, yeah, simulated version of, of that. <laughs> and um, yeah, for me, Graceland had a lot of, uh, a lot of artifice and decoration and this kind of idea of the fairy tale. It almost looked like they were in a wedding cake. And to me, they were like the figures on a wedding cake and there was all this decoration and, and just how she describes first, her first impression going there, she had never seen anything like that. And, um, and so really trying to, trying to convey that. And, and when I read her book, it reminded me a little bit of Alice in Wonderland of her kind of going into this, um, this world and uh, yeah. And a fairy tale that turns out not as she imagined, I, I would guess. It's weird though. Cause I remember about the book because everybody seems to make everything about Elvis Presley. So I ended up getting a copy of that too. Mm -hmm. uh, right. <laughs> So uh, it was that it was like being somebody was reporting on being an Alice in Wonderland. You know what I mean? Like, like these journalistic dispatches from being inside this crazy place. Yeah, totally. I just thought, I don't know, the way that she describes it is so um, vibrant. Like you can really picture the details of being there. And I wanted to show, yeah, her feet sinking into the carpet. And, and she describes going into his bedroom for the first time and how intimidating, you know, how big his bed was and all the women there before her and, you know, trying to kind of exaggerate all that, but still the whole world is exaggerated. So it, it could still feel, feel real, hopefully. Wait, Elvis is, is that your, is that your given name or nickname? No, and if, oh, that's my given name. <laughs> oh, okay. So yeah, you definitely must have a lot of memorabilia. Yeah. <laughs> Way too much. I get rid of too much of it. But yeah, I, I was just sort of struck by two in this, in this movie, especially about how much size is a part of everything, everything is bigger than she is until the last third of the movie. And it's really kind of amazing how sort of subliminal that, that becomes and how you're not using it for satirical points. It's just to sort of illustrate in a way the book did about she, again, she's like she's reporting on walking into these places and everything seems to be throwing an enormous shadow over her. And the same thing is happening in the movie. Oh, I'm glad because, yeah, her book, her book did feel like that. So that, I think it's the fun of adapting something is how do you um, describe that in a visual way, which this had so much to draw on. It was so much fun to create the visuals of it, but definitely that feeling of her. Yeah. Like you said, reporting from inside is such a good way of putting it, but yeah, just her discovering it all and being in, in the, in the midst of it and looking around and, and, you know, being such a new setting for her and, and kind of growing up in that, in that world with that being the norm. I guess I was really struck by a section in the movie that, I mean, it, it's kind of chilling to think that, you know, as a child, she goes, she flies across the world to go to this place, and as it made clear in the book, sort of like addled by the time difference, and then he gives her a sleeping pill, and she wakes up <laughs> in, in a different time and a different place, and I just thought the way you just, the way you illustrated that in the film was really interesting. I want to talk to you about constructing that sequence. Oh, I'm glad because I when I read that I was like, what? You know, she was you <laughs> know, know sleeping for a few days. It's like hard to believe. And and I and I think, you know, when she says he didn't obviously he wasn't thinking he didn't wasn't malicious or trying to knock her out, but he just, you know, he was just a he had a prescription and that back then whatever the doctor said was fine and and he was that was his routine. And you know, I, I think he was like trying to help her. She was jet lagged or whatever, but realize like, you know how how had no idea how that would affect her but like you would think he just you know, he wasn't thinking but 
not to not to um condone that but yeah it's just so like startling and um because she writes all these stories as if it's just you know her experience and then you're as you're reading you're like what did i just did i just read that <laughs> I, I know it's like every couple of pages is a beat like that. And in the movie, every yeah. couple of scenes, there's a beat like that, too. But you deliver it in the same way that she does. I mean, she doesn't really italicize things. She just sort of lets us know what's going on. And you do the same thing in the film. So it's up to us as an audience to sort of be hit by the impact of it. Oh, I'm glad because I yeah, I never wanted to be judgmental. And I just wanted to kind of yeah show it the way that she does and and you're right she doesn't make a big deal about it. like this is just what happened to her and you know it's all these crazy things but it was just my life you know so I just I, yeah, I tried as hard as I could to just try to give the impression of what it was maybe like for her and what and go on that ride with her then the kind of roller coaster of it all and and just imagine it's like it's challenging enough to grow up and kind of find your way but then to do it in such a you know extreme situation that was so revolving around him and his likes. But to really go from one sequestered existence to another. Yeah, I always, um, I always like those worlds where, um, I mean, I guess because she, I, I'm surprised that she, you know, was male's effort to get there. And then as soon as she gets there, he's, you know, off in Hollywood and expecting her to wait at home. And I was like, what were you doing all day? Like what? And just, you know, that all these expectations that I don't think, you know, she thought, thought of you know like that she was supposed to um you know be waiting at home and, and you know that and like what what was she doing getting her hair done <laughs> i mean it's it's kind of amazing just because what you also illustrate in the movie is that he's as much kind of a prisoner of being trapped inside as she is and in some weird way it's almost like he's both prey and predator because what she's under what she's experiencing through him, he is in his way experiencing through Colonel Tom Parker. And you make that clear as as, as more texture than than spelling it out. But it's really kind of watching this sort of cycle of repression. I mean, it really is almost like, it really is Edith Warden. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's that's so cool. I didn't even think of that. I mean, I did think about, I, I was struck by how she explained, you know, how he was stuck and where his frustrations came from. And I thought it was so important to know as, just have this inside of him as a as an artist, but understand where his behavior came from, and that he was he was struggling and, and frustrated. And um, but it's true they were they were both um, you know limited or trapped in a way. No, I mean because that becomes really evident in that scene where he's surrounded by all these you know these books about you know consciousness raising, and that also sort yeah. of speaks to his boredom as much as anything else, and also that he is in his way being affected by being around actors and being in that world. And there's something about that that, in some way, forces you, or if you're conscious at all, to ask questions yeah. about your existence. And we just sort of that that attempt to do that, and then when he gets rid of all those books. And again, first of all, those books being laid out on that carpet, <laughs> um, yeah. which is like playing in the clouds and then get rid of all that. That to me sort of drove home how much repression was a part of his world too. And it's really just sort of heartbreaking. Again, watching this, this cycle of repression being visited from one person to another. Yeah. Yeah. And no, I think, yeah, I felt like he, he's sympathetic because you know that he had, he wanted to be in, express himself in a deep way through his acting and be a serious actor and, and then to be yeah, stuck doing these corny musicals and always wanting something more and what was his purpose. Yeah. And especially being, yeah, in an artificial world, I think Hollywood, he always wanted to kind of keep her outside of that 
And yeah, so in a way, he, I never really thought about the similar struggles. Well, what was your first conversation like with, with Priscilla? Yeah, I I called her. I was really nervous. Like, just call her up and say, like, would you ever consider your book um, being made into a film? And because the book came out, I think, in the mid-80s, like, you know, a while ago. And um, and she was hesitant, but was was really complimentary that she liked my work and that she would consider. And then and then she she said, OK. And I remember going to see her and sitting down with all these questions. And I was like, where do we even start? Um, and she was she was so gracious and sweet and open to, you know, however she could be helpful. But at the same time, she's she's protective. And you could tell that it's, you know, she's still protective of him and their story and the legacy. And um, but for me, the best was being able to, as I was working on the script, be able to call her at different points and just ask her questions to to fill things in. And and she told me things that definitely, um, you know, helped and fill out the the story and and just there's the scene where in Germany they go to the movies and he's lip syncing along to the movie and how much he wanted to be that kind of an actor um I thought said so much which I don't think was in the book no it's not so that yeah so that that helped a lot just to I felt like to give some background and where yeah what he was going through and what what his dreams were and what what his frustrate where his frustrations came from and I remember asking her because the scene that when she talks about the pol- they dress up in costumes and take Polaroids kind of saucy Polaroids, I remember asking her, like, well, what what kind of costumes? Because when you're making movies, you have to, like, get the costumes. I was like, and it felt like, oh, I don't want to pry, but what kind of costumes? And, and she said, well, she hesitated. She said, well, secretary. And that kind of, like, filled in with the, you know, those kind of, I guess I would kind of like the 60s Playboy um, idea of the time. Oh, boy. Uh, we'll take a short break and come back with more revelations from Sofia Coppola about Priscilla Presley, who's the subject of her new film, Priscilla. is the treatment. There's more to come. Stay with us. A girl who wants my kisses and my arms. A girl with all the charms of you. Venus make her fair. A lovely girl with sunlight in her hair. And take the brightest stars up in the Welcome back. It's the treat for my guest is our old friend Sophia Coppler, whose new film is on the life and times of Priscilla Presley. It's called Priscilla. You can also hear the show at KCRW.com slash the treatment. I guess I was thinking about this this thing too, just because and I want to ask you about why you decided to do it here, to sort of make it so much about claustrophobia. Just because we're so aware of walls being around them. Even in that scene you were just talking about before the break, where he's leaning in and he's just signing the dialogue along and you can sort of see her seeing the movie through his eyes. They're still inside. And um, there's something both sort of inviting and, and, and terrifying about these rooms that they're so often in. Yeah, I mean, it really felt like she was, um, wasn't was going anywhere. Like she didn't have an option. She, there's a scene where they're fighting and he tells her to pack her bags and she... She couldn't go home because there's. A, she talks about how if she if she didn't make it work with him, then not only would she 
have failed, but her parents would feel like they made a mistake. So I think she felt this big responsibility to her parents also that they were doing the right thing to let her um, stay there with him. So I, I just think, I think she had so much pressure on her and then to be, you know, his ideal woman at a moment as a, you know, a young person where she's trying to figure out, you know, who she wants to be and all this, you know, kind of expectations and these roles of women at that time. So I felt a lot from her her book, the you know the just the oppression of that time, but you know also mixed with the the fun and excitement of that. But ultimately, that she was stuck in this world, not really of her her choosing, and and um, and you know it seems like this yeah ultimate fairy tale that she should be you know thrilled with, and it's not really what it didn't seem like it you know was wasn't what she imagined. And also the idea that she was in high school and wasn't allowed to have any friends come over and just the the kind of all the rules and limitations and expectations around her. Yeah, I was just going to say there's always so much to talk to you about with these things because at, at almost in all these films, there's a moment where there are people who are in effect children play acting as adults. Um, and and yeah. as you were talking about them trying on those costumes and playing at that or, or him getting a, um, a backhoe to tear down a, um, a shack on his property. And this goes back to virgin suicide so often, and certainly a big part of Marie Antoinette, or even The Beguiled, uh, younger or people playing at being an adults, shaped by their idea of what an adult is because they've lived in these worlds where they have not a lot of contact with real grown-ups. And, and that's always fascinating to me because it may occur in these movies, but it's realized in different ways in every single one of them. Uh, that's so interesting. Yeah, I, I always like the idea of um, playing grown-ups, but I don't know where that comes <laughs> from. And I, and I always like characters trying to figure out. I think it's always interesting how people become who they are. So I love stories of people in transition, especially girls into women, and how and how you find your way. Yeah, because in that last third of the film, she really is an adult, and she looks like an adult. And again, she weirdly looks younger <laughs> in those scenes with, with there's not so much makeup, and and she yeah, because hold... she's more natural. Oh, sorry, yeah, she's less makeup on. So I think she goes back to more her original look. That's kind of the idea was that she's like a more true to her 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 real self. Yeah, but also you light her differently in, in that section, too. I mean, there's much more natural light there. It seems like she's sort of yeah. blooming outside. That's what yeah. I was talking about, the differences between being inside and outside in movies. Yes, it's it's really wonderful stuff in visual terms. Uh, oh, that's cool. Yeah, it definitely is. Um, she does. Get, yeah, once she gets outside, she's more in touch with the 70s world, which I thought because it's the 70s. But it, it is also for her emotional part of where she is in the story. And, and connecting to something more true to her, her real self. Because um, I again wanted to ask you what you talked to your star about when you cast her, and 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 what her take on the material was. Yeah, well, I I just met Kaylee once, and I I was really struck with like how am I going to find an actress that can be believable at fourteen through twenty nine, and she has such a baby face, but she's in her twenties. Um, and so she's, and Kaylee's very thoughtful and she's from that part of the world. She was born in Tennessee. Like, so she grew up with like the myth of, of Priscilla. Um, and I think just, you know, we were really, you know, taking everything from her, from the book. And then Kaylee spent some time with Priscilla, just talking to her and even watching the home movies, you get a sense of, 
just the way, just sort of her essence and the way she carries herself. And she has an interesting mix of inner strength with this very kind of delicate um, femininity. And I, don't know, I think Kelly just was able to to capture to capture that. It's interesting because I guess we read the reports that one of your stars, one of your actors, recommended her to you, and the the actor who recommended her to you is also somebody who's really can do very well with silence. And there's a lot that Kaylee has to do with silence. Yeah, Kirsten Dunst had just worked with her, and so I asked her, you know, what, you know, how how that was, and she she told me, um, yeah, how much she liked working with her and how talented she thought she was. So that that gave me I. I know Kirsten knows my taste and sensibilities so so well, and I really trust her. So that gave me the confidence to um, jump in with Kaylee, who, yeah, I just met once, and you're asking her to carry a whole movie. Um, but yeah, I think there's a certain, um, yeah, just a certain certain ability I, to to be okay to be comfortable in the silence. And Kaylee has a talent of just being able to express so much on her face without saying anything, and certain actors can do that. Um, it's just some some quality ability that, that some people have, and um, yeah, I found her really touching, and, and you can really get so much just from what's happening on her face without saying anything. Well, so often with you, you um, you're asking actors to really convey several states because we so often in your films are watching these characters mature over the course of the time we see them on screen. And sometimes it can be compacted into a really small space as in Lost in Translation, or it's here where it's a decade. And and she does seem, even though she's not wearing the makeup and all this stuff by the end of the movie, she does seem like a grown-up. She feels like an adult, a full-bodied person, the way that she does not. And there's you have an affinity for finding those people who can play out entire lifetimes for you. Yeah, I'm so I'm so glad because it, it um I also we were shooting out of order and jumping all around in time. So when I saw it in order, I was really impressed that she could convey that um transition that's it's done in a subtle way. It's you know, little by little kind of creeps up and before you know it, she emerges. And um and so she was able to to keep track of that. I think the clothes, the costumes helped her kind of where she was in the story. But um yeah, Kelly was so good at that and and um and hopefully the, I don't know, the beats of the story hopefully helped her um, find that. But yeah, no, I, I love watching her kind of grow up before your eyes. And the same thing happens with him, you know? I mean, just when he's trying to have his rapprochement with her, I mean, you're asking the same thing. You're asking the same thing of, of Jacob, too, to sort of grow up and try to be a, uh, a, a grown person. Uh, and I think that's interesting, too. It's, it's not just her. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's it's like yeah, watching their relationship. But I, th- I remember Jacob saying that he was just trying to think of them not as Elvis and Priscilla, but just this relationship. And he's kind of stuck in boyhood, and she wants him to grow up. And she, she Priscilla talks about that in her book that he that he kind of wasn't able to, and when after they had it had their daughter, and um, you know, and their relationship needed to grow in a different way, that he just wasn't able to to meet her there, and um, you know, and that starts to feel like where they start to um go different ways but that you know that they it's not but the, yeah that there was a lot of love there and he just wasn't um capable in, in meeting her where she what she needed oh we're out of time i can't thank you enough it's always a gosh always a pleasure to talk to you you know that and congratulations on the film 
Thank you, Elvis. I'm so glad to talk to you. And I hope I see you soon. Pop music and coming of age. The ongoing examination of and deconstruction of these topics by writer-director Sofia Coppola. She viewed Priscilla Presley through the lens of Edith Wharton for a newest film, Priscilla. It's more literally adapted from the 1988 memoir, Elvis and Me. Celebrated lives given another look. Find conversations about them at the archive, kcrw.com slash the treatment. More Elvis and you to come. Guess who I am in that equation? It's the treatment. KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes. Join Jacqueline Coley as she hosts a brand new podcast, Seen on the Screen. Meet the innovative people at NBC Universal as they share their journeys, inspirations, and the movies that define them. Each episode is an intimate and fun conversation about the impact of film. Seen on the Screen is available now wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. It's the treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell. How best to put this? Someone who spent the last few years, I think, um, chronicling in film the lives of archetypes of American masculinity, all of whom have interests in the West, and all of whom, in one way or another, we watch grow up and grown up with over the years. We're talking, of course, about figures that range from Willie Nelson to Elvis Presley to Bruce Springsteen to his latest film subject, Sly, Sylvester Stallone for Netflix. I'm talking to the director, documentary director, Tom Zimri. Tom, thanks so much for being here. Uh, thank you. But let's talk about that because these are all guys who, it's fascinating that they all, in one way or another, Stallone too, connect with the West in some way, don't they? Absolutely. And sometimes these, these things happen unconsciously, but I had a place when I was working on the Sly film and I started to tie in some universal themes in in the film work in the past couple of years and the west is definitely the imagery there comes to mind and also just the father-son relationships that's a strong strong theme also that ran through all these docs not only the fathers but families i mean these are figures who in a lot of ways represent these kind of loner types but they're all very much rooted to family and the impact the family had on them aren't they Absolutely. When you when you get to the space of Elvis, you know, his father goes to prison at an early age. He becomes the man in the world who's got to take care of his mom and that responsibility. Then when you get to the place of Johnny Cash, he loses a brother. He lives in the shadow of a lost brother and has conflict with his father. And obviously the work with Bruce Springsteen, he himself has talked a lot about his relationship with his father and the impact of, of that on his life and work. And then I came to Sly. And that theme, once again, it w- was apparent. But it would slide. The biggest surprise was I had no clue going into the project that this was something I could explore. So there was this moment where I was in the first interview and I realized that this theme is is in my work and this is something I'm chasing and 
on an unconscious level. And I think early on with my conversations with Sly, I realized he was figuring out his story in these films. I had to look at Rocky differently. I had to look at that relationship between his manager more than just a mentor. These things were, were saving him. His pen was a form of therapy and healing. And he was creating a universe and a, and a series of characters that would be on his own experiences. I just wondered for you, when you realized this, or when you did you realize this, that all these guys are sort of these, these self-created figures who came out of something less than the middle class, who built these things around them that were particularly and peculiarly American, weren't they? It, it came to me in the process of cutting Sly because there was a familiar feeling in the quiet of the cutting room where I went, wait a minute, this is something that I've been visiting before. This is a theme that I've been chasing. And my own connection to film, my own connection to music circles back to a lot of these artists where I really believed in the power of film and music to take me to a different place. While making Sly, I realized this is something that's in me this is something that's in these characters, but I think also there's this opportunity to strip down the icon and chase stories that get lost. With Elvis, it was a story, obviously, of unpacking the influence of the music in a different way, not giving it a shorthand that he went on Ed Sullivan and created something called rock and roll. It was giving place to the influences. You know, like I grew up with that in my generation. And it's something very healing for myself just to have this opportunity to work with a story and to not repeat that shorthand. And Sly was no different. I wanted to make sure that I got across that he was a filmmaker, that he was a, a writer developing characters that came from a place of his own life, going beyond just the sound bites of how he made Rocky and, and the things that were just kind of again and again repeated. But there's a line at the beginning of Elvis Presley, The Searcher, which is, you can still find on HBO, I guess, whatever, Max, or whatever they're calling that these days, uh, saying that he was a searcher. And that's a line that could be used at the beginning of any of these projects that you've done. Absolutely, because I recognized in Sylvester Stallone a lot of you know the elements of, of working with Bruce Springsteen, of working on films on Johnny Cash, Elvis. It's this idea of a restlessness and a work ethic of pouring into notebook upon notebooks. Sly, especially in the doc, I had these moments in his office where he would take down notebooks and show me versions of Rocky, where he was handwriting the dialogue page by page by page, very much like jazz. He was finding the rhythms and the character's rhythms and dialogue. And it reminded me of, of seeing Bruce Springsteen show me the lyrics of like Badlands or Born to Run, where there were so many different versions where they're pouring their heart into the work, but also it's beyond just that. It, it's really trying to figure out their journey in the moment and also unpack their past. So much of it too is just about how popular culture influences icons and Again, that the West has had such a big impact on all of these people at some point or another. And it's shocking to me because in watching Sly, I had some vague memory of that tumultuous attempt at returning <laughs> to Polo and being struck down literally by his father. But I had no idea that it went back so far that he was a, a writer 
uh, and played polo as a teenager and that his father was a, a cavalryman. This is incredible stuff that you're able to find. Sometimes when you're in the space of doing an interview, you could see across the room someone's eyes connect in a way that there's a place of pain. And when I was doing my first interview with Sly, he referenced a photo on the wall, which was him later in his career playing polo. And I could see that there was something there. And I circled back to it. And the, the theme of the West, it's so apparent in that narrative of Sly being involved with playing polo as a child, his father completely taking over, rejecting him as a player, challenging him to the place that he stops playing a duel of sorts. And literally, Sly gives up riding horses, becomes a huge celebrity in, in the late 80s, gets his own polo team, sets his father up with a team to challenge Sly's team, a father and son match. And in that, Sly's father takes him down, takes him down with a hit that was illegal and with footage that I found that just demonstrated the full dynamic of that competition and the father and son conflict. So at times when he was describing these things, you could literally visualize it being a Western because it was two guys meeting in the middle of the street in that way for the showdown. What I found was working with Sly was I would come back to things and the polo match, I came back to it five, six times organically in conversation until I could unpack it because it wasn't a narrative that he could just sit down and say, this is what happened. It was such a traumatic event that he would tell me a bit one time. He'd go back and give me more detail the second time. The third time I would have a little bit of information to be able to structure my question, to fill out some of the ideas of missing pieces. Like a very traumatic situation, it, it could never just be a, a narrative that he, he could retell from start to finish. But I was chasing those things, sometimes not knowing why. I'll never forget that expression that he had when he was telling the story, but also seeing that footage. And for me, it became quickly a theme to chase in the narrative, just to demonstrate the full impact of that father and son relationship. At some point in all these stories, there's a point where we see the character just kind of devastated by hurt. And he goes into great depth to talk about all the pain that the Rambo character is going through that really informs that first film that gets lost in the subsequent movies until the last one, I guess. The amount of trauma these characters have all experienced, they're all kind of built on this foundation of being betrayed by someone or having something taken away from them in really dramatic terms. As I was beginning to get details of Sly's life, and he was unpacking in front of me some of these details, the films would change forever. Rambo was no longer a character that was part of this franchise. The details of that story, those storylines suddenly became really clear of how the survival was a reflection of his own survival at different times. I remember something that didn't end up in the film when he talked about being rejected at a boarding school. And it so mirrored one of the scenes of, of Rambo. This happened again and again, where he, by giving me the space of trust and time to talk, would change completely my understanding 
of these characters, the pain and the chaos of the Rocky character from the first Rocky to the second film to the third film. That was all a reflection of what Sly was going through in his early celebrity, but also again and again chained to those themes that he was discussing as a child. We're still talking to the man who's wrestling with myth and masculinity in his documentaries. The director, Tom Zimney, whose newest film for Netflix is Sly on the Life of Sylvester Stallone. You can also hear the show at kcrw.com slash the treatment. All of these figures have had some success and then had that success taken away from them and had to reboot, as you put it, because it happens with Stallone. After Rocky, he makes Paradise Alley. He makes Fist. He makes Rocky too, but in some ways it seems like almost an act of desperation. It's easier to read now, 40 years later, what it was, but then it felt like something, like he was grasping on to something. And then Rambo comes out of nowhere and gives him a chance to claim a different kind of stardom for himself. For the most part, all these artists' recognition, they all have this incredible self-awareness that is shocking to me. When it came to the place of looking at Rocky too. And looking at it again with the POV after the interviews I had currently with Sly, I realized that Rocky II was nothing more than him really unpacking his celebrity experience after Rocky. And Quentin Tarantino really helps in the film unpack that storyline where he was so aware of how therapeutic the Rocky character was for him as a person that he wrote in the difficulties of his newfound celebrity through both those characters in the Rocky films. You know, he would use these films as a device to process and heal again and again throughout his career. But especially with Rocky too, it's a, it's a great example of how the films changed for me as a filmmaker and as a fan, where I suddenly got a completely different understanding. And then also, like you just said, I realized how self-aware they were and how much work had gone on in looking at the Rocky character's development and arc. Because there's something that happens in Rocky too that was really powerful, which is that the character gets a family, makes a family. That's just not a casual script detail when it comes to Sylvester Stallone. He's building a narrative He's building this narrative of a man finding his place in the world, coming to a place of healing with his wife he has to box, and also creating a universe he didn't experience, a family unit. There's a generational difference between Stallone and Springsteen versus Elvis and Johnny Cash and, and Willie Nelson. And to some extent, we can see it's funny watching Sly and watching Louis of Flatbush and seeing he's doing you know, a character that Elvis could have played almost in some ways. There's all these lines of connection in the work. That's the fun of it for me, because at some point, too, these are guys whose talent at some point people do finally sort of latch on to or, or see. In many of these cases, these people all have to say, no, I have to take control because other people don't understand what it is I need to say. And, and that must fascinate you, too. That at some point, they all start shaping their own narratives. That moment of shaping your own narrative, when it comes to Willie Nelson, it's the complete rejection of what is proper stylistically, how to record a song. You know, he he brings in his own band and, and records Redheaded Stranger, and, and the record company thinks it's a demo. With Sly, he's delivering a script that 
automatically um, the studios want a celebrity attached to, and, and he's holding on to the authentic music of that dialogue and, and character. With Bruce, it was the same thing with Born to Run. There's that moment where the record company wants his new record. He's taking a long time and, and it feels like he's going to be dropped. And he's creating this masterpiece, Born to Run, and it's taking a long time because he's chasing a bigger sound, a bigger idea. I look at all these guys as ha having a journey. And within that journey, they have to try all kinds of things. And some of them fail and some of them connect to the world. And some of them are just lost. Like Copland for me was was a perfect example of just a film that I wanted to go back to and, and just explore in the dock. And I was able to get some things from Sly that just had not been talked about. I felt like it was one of those films that he took a chance and, and just got lost in you know, the body of work. It's so interesting, too, because that moment he talks about Copland, first of all, you can see that in that moment we're talking about, we essentially he starts directing the film himself. And it gets back to this thought I have about all your work, which is that literally and figuratively, these guys are all the best accompanists. Absolutely. And, you know, the films that Sly did direct, the moments that would come out, there would be certain scenes of Fist that would just stand out. And then later on, I would read that he rewrote that sequence. I think with Copland, some of the details that I see in that film and, and some of the, you know, he describes the scene with De Niro where he pushed it and went beyond the script. And he takes over the film. That, that's him directing the movie. He takes over. That's <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And, you know, when you're making a documentary, you have that idea as a question. And it's it's a scribbled note, Copland. All of a sudden you realize across from you, you could continue with this questioning, but you need to get out of your own way because Sly is reenacting the scene for you. There's no question you need to ask. You need to just sit back. And what happened with that scene in the dock was that he literally tells the story of going beyond the script, challenging De Niro to a place of being combative in the scene, getting the energy that Sly thought the scene needed. And then he walked out going, yes, I got it. That whole thing just demonstrated to me his dedication to the craft, his understanding of the arc of a movie, that the movie needed that moment. I saw the screenwriter, I saw the director, and, and I saw the actor all in that one little story. And I did not have that written out. What I did do was sit back and let it happen. And Sly just went on a journey with it, acting out the parts, describing it in detail. To me, part of my dance with Sly was knowing when to get out of my own way and, and just let, let him go off and tell me something new and teach me. Well, my guest was showing me he's a director as well as Tom Zimney's new project for Netflix is Sly on the Life of Sylvester Stallone. Tom, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. Sylvester Stallone, analyzed by himself and Tom Zimney, the director of the Netflix documentary, Sly. For the treat, it's actor, writer, and director Zoe Lister-Jones on art that takes her many places, both big and small. For other journeys of heart and mind, dip into the archives at kcrw.com slash the treat. It's The Treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell. And for The Treat, Zoe Lister-Jones, who, among other things, wrote, directed, and starred in the Roku series, Slip. 
she ruminates on an album that was as transporting as her comedy fantasy drama show was. I'm Zoe Lister-Jones, and this is The Treat. I would say my treat of late is a new album that I can't stop listening to called Roach by Mia Folick. didn't know Mia's work until uh, Whitmer Thomas, who actually plays my husband in Slip, sent me one of her songs called Bad Thing. That was a single before her album was released. It was when we were shooting. So it was something that I think was playing a lot as I would come home from very long days of shooting Slip. Um, and I think those songs are always really meaningful, like the the songs that are the soundtrack to, you know, profound and transformative artistic experiences. Yeah, Mia's song, Bad Thing, was really that for me at that time. And I think that song in particular is like the story of someone who, at least my take on it, who does a bad thing over and over and over again, <laughs> you know, who's being fueled by some sort of addictive tendency. And that's being paired with also a self-awareness that it isn't serving them or maybe the, the people in their in their life. And I think while making Slip, that was, you know, very much a mirror to my character's narrative and to the narrative in general. And I think many of the larger themes that I was looking to explore as a person and as an artist. It's an incredible album, top to bottom. And I think very, very much like explores those themes throughout relationships that uh, have gone south and, and how we find ourselves within them and without them and what it means to sort of grieve and find your footing again. And there's like anthemic songs and songs to cry to. And I'm always looking for, um, for yeah, sad, bad girl anthems. <laughs> Zoe Lister-Jones, who created, wrote, directed, and starred in the Roku series Slip on the album Roach. Find a library of reflection at kcrw.com slash the treat, which includes Alex Borstein's thoughts on an album that had a big impact on her. Music that captivates, books that instigate, films that investigate, style that initiates, the tremors of inspiration that shape creative lives, it's the treat. And it's the end of the show, whose contents were produced and edited by Rebecca Mooney and mixed by Katie Gilchrist. And let's give thanks to them and for the help we got, of course, also give thanks to Anna Buss, Laura Kandarajan, and PJ Shahamed. To better days, everyone. I'm Elvis Mitchell. It's the treatment.
KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes, presenting Scene on the Screen with Jacqueline Coley, a new podcast about the people at NBC Universal and the movies that define them. Available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.